1: Hello and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm Megan O'Rourke, Slate's culture critic, and joining me today are Troy Patterson, Slate's TV critic and a regular on the Audio Book Club. Howdy. Howdy. And a special guest star, Michael Agger, uh, a Slate editor and a columnist, author of the Browser column. Welcome, Michael. Hello. So today we are talking about Nicholson Baker's new novel, The Anthologist, which I'm very excited to talk about. But before we get to this very exciting new discussion that we're going to have, Troy is going to bring us a word from our sponsors.
2: Indeed. And that sponsor is audible.com which carries more than 50,000 audiobooks, uh, which you can download right to the same device you have playing at this very moment. And as a special deal for book club listeners, if you sign up for a a one-book-a-month membership, you'll get a free book as a thank you. You might even choose, um, let's see, the one Nicholson-Baker book they have on there is a piece of nonfiction called Human Smoke, uh, which I have not read, but which is apparently this sort of uh, pacifist, reconsideration of uh, the lead-up to World War II. It actually didn't get very strong reviews, so maybe you want to skip that one and just read some poems instead.
1: Although Charles Simic recommends it highly in the latest New York review of books, I will just note. Ah,
2: Oh, okay. Noted. Duly noted. Mm -hmm. Um, So the the address to visit then is uh, www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate. That address, once again, www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate. So that's that.
1: Thank you, Troy, as always. So today, The Anthologist, Nicholson Baker. Um, the Anthologist is a novel um, that is the sto- is narrated by Paul Chowder, a middle-aged poet who lives in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and is who is trying to finish his work on an anthology specifically he is trying to finish writing an essay about the virtues of rhyme this isn't no ordinary poetic anthology but an anthology dedicated to promoting the pleasure and necessity of rhyme in poetry I'm particularly excited to talk about this book because um, in addition to being an audiobook club participant, I am a poet and also am a poetry editor at the Paris Review and teach poetry. And this is a world. This is a kind of whirlwind tour through contemporary poetry in which there are cameos by many of my colleagues. And this is definitely the very first time in an audiobook club I've ever been able to kind of talk about – see my colleagues' names in, uh, in, a, in a book. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of a kind of poetry geek's response like mine – I'm very curious, Troy and Michael. What did you make of this book and its and its portrait of of the contemporary American poetry world? And what do you want to say about? It?
2: I quite enjoyed it. I mean, novel's a little bit of a strong word to use for it because it's 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 sort of a voice piece combined with a kind of primer on on verse on meter, most specifically. And like most of or. You know, all of the Nicholson Baker novels that I've read, it's very kind of still and deals in uh, uh, what is minute and what is miniature. And I'm thinking most of uh, The Mezzanine, his first novel, which I really dig. And, um, and then there's uh, A Box of Matches, hmm. which I didn't dig so much, but it's because it's a book about waking up at 4 a.m. and making a fire, <laughs> which is what it is. So, yeah, I was thoroughly charmed by it. I don't really have any... Credentials as a poetry person. I got into writing, thinking that I wanted to be a poet, and then uh, and took workshops to that effect in college, and then uh, quit that noise by the time I was nineteen.
1: Michael, thoughts, impressions, disagreements. Yeah.
0: Well, I you know I hadn't read. Baker since the mezzanine, and I don't mean this with any disrespect, but it um, struck me as very much like uh, like David Foster Wallace light, mm-hmm. you know, kind of again like the sort of focus on minutiae that you were saying, Troy, but you know, not the sort of level of, of craziness and um, and much more accessible. And I also, I guess, I was I was really <laughs> struck by sort of the fundamental. Um, you know, just like great idea of the books, you know, you know had this character who's defending rhyme. In a previous lifetime, I used to open all the mail for The New Yorker. Um, this was, you know, back before the anthrax scare. And, but, you know, there was still paper mail that was received by magazines. And um, there were
1: still and, magazines.
0: And, yeah, and, and there were paper magazines. And um, this is no exaggeration. Uh, two pieces of mail a week always asked for... You know why don't the poems rhyme anymore? You know this was <laughs> yeah. like a, a uh-huh. kind of a sadness, and, you, and typically it was clearly like an older, older reader. You know, older, nice address in Connecticut somewhere. But um, and then I remember while I was there, um, you know, we published the the magazine published one John Updike poem that rhymed, and then like there was this, this like outpouring of like, oh, this is the greatest poem you guys have published in, <laughs> in years. And um, so anyway, um, I I, uh, I salute Baker for I think you know kind of tap. Tapping into this this weird little intellectual reservoir, this kind of hunger for rhyme, yeah, that's that was my that was my impression.
1: It's yeah. it's it's interesting up David Foster Wallace. I was thinking about him too. Um, and actually I just read before coming here Charles Simic's review of this book in um, the New York Review of Books which is a pleasurable review to read because of course Simic actually comes up in this book a couple of times so there's a nice kind of mirror effect that I think Baker would appreciate uh, and actually Baker talks about Charles Simic's omnibus reviews in the New York Review of Books and then right. he's being reviewed you know so it's a wonderful <laughs> wonderful kind of and that's part of the pleasure of this book I think you know if, if you kind of follow the literary periodicals and one doesn't need to be a poet to do that but you know just one reads the New York Review Books that then you see kind of little mentions that. So this is a book that I think is going to be read with a kind of slightly voracious. Uh, per, um, what's the word? You know, like just the pleasure of of seeing your own world portrayed by a lot of by a lot of readers. But this book, I think, unlike Wallace Baker, has a real sense of compression and a sense of kind of. He's always interested in what Troy was saying, like the minute and the miniature, and in um, one of the things that I thought. As a poet was most astute in what Baker was saying about poetry or what this character Paul Chowder I should say is saying about poetry is he comes up with this idea of the rest at the end of lines and we'll get into more of what he says about poetry but one of his great ideas is that his big idea is that English and American poetry isn't basically based on the iambic pentameter line, which is the line we all learn in grade school and is the line of Shakespeare, to be or not to be, that is the question. But in Chowder's view, it's, a, it's an older line, the four-beat line, that's the basic building block of, of, of English-language poetry. And he sort of – this book is, in a way, a kind of polemic about that. It's sort of musings of an obsessed – you know, lonely guy who walks, wends his way through town and is thinking all the time about the four beat line. But as a kind of affable, amiable neighbor and kind of, you know, wouldn't give away necessarily his obsessions or his preoccupations. But one of Chowder's ideas is that there's a rest at the end of the line. And that seemed to me so beautiful. And we can look at the examples of it. So beautiful an idea. And also very Baker, because Baker is really interested in pauses and silences. And you think about the mezzanine. That's a book that's sort of about looking at the spaces that get— Passed by by writers. Right.
2: Usually. For anyone who hasn't read it, it's a book about riding up an escalator, or right. rather about the the sort of uh, getting a new shoelace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not quite. A, it's a little bit tidier than a stream of consciousness novel, but it's one that yeah dwells on shoelaces and yeah drinking so, straws.
1: I loved this novel. I also thought it was a little bit slight ultimately, and I just wonder what you know what you thought of. It. I mean, there's sort of one. There's sort of two tensions, dramatic tensions in it. One is will will Paul Chowder finish his you know, his uh, introduction for this anthology, because his editors are calling him, he's not, he's not finishing it, you know, he's getting in trouble. And the other is, if he does that, or, or even apart from doing that, can he get his ex-girlfriend Roz back? He has a girlfriend who's left him. And the kind of main psychic, one of the main psychic dramas of the book is that he misses her and wants her back. The other is his musings about poetry. Did this feel like satisfying enough to you? or there...
2: I wouldn't call it slight so much as small if there's mm. a distinction to be mm-hmm. made there. Uh, I think it's actually uh, like a novella that happens to be, you know, 240 pages. <laughs> um, and so it, it it says what it needs to say about its topic. But, you know, it's, it's minor, but sort of contentedly minor, agreeably minor. Another couple, three points I want to make before we charge ahead. Uh, one is that despite the um, certain pleasure that – the book will give to people involved in the poetry world. I don't at all want to uh leave listeners with the impression that there's too much inside baseball here. It's 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 accessible to anyone. Or anyone with just uh even the slightest interest in poems and in poetry. And that, you know, we're talking about the character Paul Chowder, you know, trying to finish his introduction to this anthology is sort of he's not trying that hard <laughs> uh, or i mean he wishes that he were trying hard but he's sort of
1: he's failing to try hard yeah
2: yeah yeah um yeah. and also there there's a way it's you know kind of this one of these books where there's a, a guy and he's on the far side of 50 and his girlfriend left him and he's sort of feeling lonely and alone and at loose ends but it's, it's it feels a lot fresher and more pleasurable than such a synopsis might indicate like i've certainly had my fill of these kind of ponderous sort of richard ford kind of stories that are just glum and
1: oh uh, there's uh, more richard (laughs) ford than that yeah (laughs) Yeah. i mean
2: mean, clearly uh you know
0: you can see paul giamatti playing um, paul childer in the movie i mean that's a given but
1: but you could also see like nick nolte playing him
2: true Although that would be a scarier <laughs> <laughs> but,
1: but you off. Yeah. There's, there's, yeah.
2: there's a lot of like bounce in in, in the language. And so, yeah. you know, despite the fact that um, he dwells on sort of his guilt and uh, his frustration and his regrets, the, there's a lot of fun to be had there because he's a bit, he's kind of punchy.
1: Yeah. It's funny you say that because going along with what you're saying about this not being inside baseball, I was um, actually at a poetry reading the other night with Charles Simic and we were talking about the book. And one thing I said to him is that – I, I really enjoyed this book. It's very bouncy. It's it's kind of it's an investigation of how the mind works, of meandering, of thinking about thinking and it's it's about music actually quite a lot too and about longing and obsession and but in in that way the the kind of bounciness makes me not quite convinced that this is really a poet. Like I think if it, it was I was saying that Charles, if this were a real poet, I think you'd be far more morose and bitter. And the part of the pleasure of this is that you feel that it's actually kind of Nicholson Baker imagining what it's to be it is to be a poet. And it doesn't he could be almost anything, he could be a musician. It's the pleasure of watching Baker kind of work out the finger variations of what it might be to be a to be this interested in something
0: right almost yeah yeah, I thought it, uh, Paul Chowder was like a fairly excellent like New England curmudgeon, like you definitely wanted to to spend time with him, like I enjoyed his taste in beer, like Newcastle brown <laughs> ale, and he also liked smuddiness, I thought you know Baker has this sort of wonderful speci- specificity to uh you know rural orner- orneriness, I guess. Um, and uh you know, it's it's funny we keep talking about how the, you know, real poets are mentioned and, you know, this this book kind of tries to limb the the world the world of poetry and uh and I think I I I don't know, I sort of got the impression that Baker was doing that to kind of convey a big bigger point of the book is just the you know, the kind of fundamental humanness of poetry, you know. So that's sort of what I call the kind of naming of names and you know, I'm sending my poems to Paul Muldoon at the New Yorker and good old Alice Quinn and then I, I don't know, I was wondering what your impressions of, of why he was so sp- specific about that world, you know, what what did you think of that?
1: It's a good question because there's a lot also in the book, like he does a beautiful reading of um, an a W. H. Auden poem and he, he does some readings of poems and he often he offers up this whole kind of uh, primer, as Troy was saying, on what meter is, but in a very playful way, um, kind of in the way that one might if, you know, it's sort of like the dream elementary school teacher who would make this all really interesting, alive, kind of funny. Yeah,
2: it's anti-pedantic. Anti-pedantic. In fact, one of his things is that he keeps being ludicrous. like, why
1: do they talk about things like pentameter and tetrameter? Why are the words this bad? And he kind of, he turns it into music. He turns it into song, and which is really pleasurable. Uh, I don't know. I asked myself that question. Why the specificity of these names? Because it, it becomes almost a little distracting at times. It was pleasurable for me, um, but it wasn't... I think your answer that there's something about kind of demystifying the world, turning it into a world of p- real people working. And one of, the, one of the themes of the book and one of the things he investigates is this idea of what does it mean to be a poet and the idea of suffering, um, the idea that like, the real poets suffered tremendously and suffered these you know, extreme depressions and that you know, being on Prozac and having a little bit of melancholy like he does doesn't quite qualify as the true suffering of the poets. And so I think that's part of it too—is sort of looking at the way that poetry has become professionalized in this country, and just holding that up. I don't know, Troy. What did you think?
2: I don't, we're talking still about um, sort of the the appearance of real people in this in this book.
1: Yeah, Michael was asking, why did we? Uh, I suppose have that
2: that I, I think that might be among the the flaws of the book. I suppose it does do something to kind of ground the book in reality, and it does do something to convey the status anxiety of Paul Chatter as someone who, you know, has enjoyed some success and years ago he won a Guggenheim and he's been invited to teach and he gets invited to conferences but you know, his best years are behind him and he feels like he's going nowhere and he's certainly not producing anything new. So, you know, comparing himself against his peers and talking about the editors who um, would write him very kind rejection notes, um, it conveys his uh, that kind of worry, but uh, I also did find a bit persuasive. You know, our friend David Orr, who is a poetry critic, reviewed uh, this for the Times and made a pretty persuasive case that there's something that's a bit off key about how real people appear here. As if there's uh, a scene later in the book where um, Paul Muldoon turns up at this poetry conference in Switzerland, and uh, you know, people are freaking out. About his uh, appearance, like uh, like teeny boppers outside the Paramount, screaming yeah. for Frank Sinatra.
1: Yeah, definitely, there is something off key about it. There's also something a little off key about I thought about this person's taste, um, the the kind of constellation of poets that he loves the most, and actually even the lines he chooses to represent what he thinks is so great about four beat poetry often seem to me not the most exemplary lines of four beat you know they're not the most beautiful lines of poetry and it did raise for me a question of how how much does baker care because there's there's also a lot of moments where he's pl- explaining some moment of poetic history and he's been completely tongue in cheek and not telling you what actually i mean for example he talks about enjambment and he says the word in, which is when you break a line and it has a kind of radical break so if you break the line after the word the and the next word is the fruit so like i da- i gave the dog the line break fruit that would be you know an enjambment and heart. and he says it's because it's where you throw ham to the dog or you know he has this kind of completely preposterous explanation then <laughs> he's like no no just kidding it's because you're jamming forward and you're like neither <laughs> of those things are true at <laughs> all so there's a kind of a lightness a tongue-in-cheek quality here and i didn't know how much of that like how deeply that extends through the book that was one question i have is like a lot of this kind of a tongue-in-cheek joke Or are some of the lines that he chooses supposed to be... Like, how much do we identify Baker with Paul Chowder and Baker's beliefs with Paul Chowder's beliefs? And how much do we see a distance between the two?
0: I have to say that the book sold me on its main mission, Um, like... You know, I definitely came away wanting to read poetry. Um, mm-hmm. There's a—you know, there's sort of this nice little—one of the many nice little riffs in the book. is like, you know, there's like only a couple times in your life where you sort of intensely care about poetry. And uh, Chowder identifies one of them as sort of, you know, the age of 19. And then and then we never really get the other stages. But, you know, I wonder—I just felt like, you know, while the book was, was playing around with the idea of— um, you know failure it was also trying to do this you know sneaky thing of coming around the corner and 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 making you really want to have one of these intense poetry moments again in your life um because it's sort of you know it's kind of the opposite poetry is sort of the opposite of everything that's happening right now you know you're paying attention to compression and and language and it's kind of hard to find you know and um i don't know i i guess that seems like i was more taken with the uh I don't know, the book managed to pick my pocket a little bit that way.
1: Um. Just uh, the, one thing I was thinking about, I'm, I'm trying to find a quote, too, that we could look at. But I was thinking about the book is also, um, and I wonder if you guys thought this, a kind of meditation on what it is to be a writer and what it is to what. Uh, it, where I saw Baker in the book is this question of what does it mean to be a writer? What does this work in a culture that's being increasingly given over to television and movies and technology, you know, what does it mean to write novels or or poems? And it felt like Baker didn't want to write a book about being a novelist, so he wrote a book about being a poet, which might be unfair. But there were moments where I felt that and, and kind of enjoyed that a little bit. One of the one of the moments that really struck home for me was when he's talking about he talks about the fact that. Chowder is meditating on the future you know anthropologists are going to dig up American culture and they're going to say you know they're going to be fascinated by the sitcom because that's going to be the new you know the form that emerged in this time which is true and they're going to say things like we don't know much about the originators of the Mary Tyler Moore show but we believe that you know they were et cetera et cetera Um, And I thought that there was something kind of quite poignant and quite like that this was quite a middle-aged novel, but not in the lumbering way that that Troy mentioned before, that I I agree that there's a kind of bounciness. And part of it is just the descriptions. Maybe I could read a little description on page 65 that are very typically Baker. He's kind of, you know, (laughs) he kind of anatomizes procrastination beautifully. So he says, I packed four boxes of papers in my office and I threw out lots of things. This cleaning is helping me move forward. I put the chin-up bar in the door and hit my head on it twice because I forgot it was there. Then I took it down and put it in another door. I think if I really cleaned up my office, it might be easier for me to finish the introduction. And if I finish the introduction, I think I could call Roz with genuine confidence in my voice and tell her that yes, I'd been too much of a wallower in self-doubt, but the things were on the mend and I wanted her to come back. I'm about one-seventh done with cleaning the office. Still quite a ways to go. One corner of the room is starting to get that spare, empty look. I do love that look. You know, and that's that's a very typical of this, of this voice, and it's sort of funny because in a way he actually doesn't seem too much of a wallower. He's a wallower who goes up into his barn where he writes and he sings rather than descend into the true gloom and despair that probably many writers are descending into up there.
2: Uh, yeah, and again, that's the... Um it's sort of his whimsical nature and his sort of sense of play that I think both says something about how writing works or how writing should work and also keeps the the character interesting. I would say that, um, yeah, that Nicholson Baker and Paul Chowder are at a healthy distance.
1: Yeah, um, I agree.
2: But perhaps they're they're both interested, on top of sort of their interest in poetry, uh, I think that they're both interested in sort of sound and noise. Uh, there's a, a good riff about sort of baby talk in here. Yeah. Um, and then there are these... And so syllables,
1: where syllables begin. It's quite beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: about syllables. And uh, there are a lot of fun, sort of obscure words and neologisms and sort of surprising bits of speech. He, he writes about um, Elizabeth Bishop's up hair. I love that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, fabulous. He also, one I just happened to turn to is he's talking about these federal buildings, and he talks about the federal security corn slab ectochrome mediocrity desk as an outpost of American impotence.
0: But, I mean, Megan, I think you're right that, you know, the book is chock full of writing advice, and I I took out some of them. I mean, you know, he, at one point he quotes Auden about how you should um, write drunk and revise sober. <laughs> like, I'm wondering what you guys thought of that advice.
1: Certainly uh, worth trying.
2: <laughs> I'd follow it about <laughs> once a week.
0: <laughs> and then there was sort of, um, yes, I mean, this is more, right. this is, we've heard this before, but he has this sort of riff against teaching this, um, you know, saying that to teach is to sort of be a professional liar because you have to tell students, you know, week in and week out that, you know, these poems are, that they're writing are worthy of intention when in fact they're not. And I don't know, I I, I guess that was one of the, points in the book that I thought was a little ungenerous It Mm. just seems like uh, you know, Chowder is, is kind of open to the world he's trying to maintain a certain window of innocence and then to kind of have this, I don't know, cynicism towards teaching kind of really surprised me but how did that strike you guys? It seemed like
1: I I, I felt like I totally understood that as a poetic, you know, as a type of character in the writing world that so many, there is that kind of character who's like oh, I don't teach. You know, that that would involve me in a lie and they sort of put on slightly superior airs about the fact that they don't teach. And so in that sense, I bought it as part of Chowder's character, and I also thought it set up the book, which is that he's, he doesn't want to teach, but he actually is a teacher, and this whole book is a form of teaching, and he wants to communicate, and there's a kind of pleasurable little paradox there. So in a way, I took it as being less totally cynical, less, less cynical a moment and more kind of like part of his lack of self-knowledge and part of his just kind of general haplessness that he couldn't really get it together to teach. But yeah. that might be a misreading
0: of my part. For teachers out there, um, Paul Chatter did invent the uh, the mark U-R, which means unread. Uh, <laughs> that was my favorite idea. I, know, I was I'm wondering
1: a, if we could I'm try a,
0: that. I, you know, did try this. At, you know, results may vary. Mileage may vary. Try that. Don't try that at home, or you know, what have you. But,
1: um, but, the, <laughs> but going back to Troy's point too about the kind of pleasures of language, one of the one of the things that makes this enjoyable, I think, is just those little moments. And one for me was when he just describes the fact that he. Um, you know, this is a portrait of a curmudgeon, but a but a but a jovial curmudgeon, and that's part of what makes him distinctive is that the, the joviality that goes hand in hand with the you know what could otherwise be pedantry, but but just becomes kind of lighthearted obsession. And so, for example, he desperately wants all poems to rhyme, and actually, it did. This book did make me think, God, why don't why don't poets rhyme as much as they do? Even though I also think that singular obsession with rhyme is a little is a little peculiar. But he describes at one point the fact that. He only considers poems that rhyme to be poems. Poems that don't rhyme, he calls plums, which is very funny. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And which would make you a plumber. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Or a plummet. Yeah.
1: But I wonder if someone might read a passage that, um, if we might find a passage that we thought kind of epitomizes his ability to be enjoyable about poetry um, rather than pedantic. I don't know. Did either of you have a favorite passage?
2: What I was just looking at, this is less about the sort of the scansion that he does, and then um, uh, this goes towards the fun way he expresses himself. He's talking about the fact that, you know, in order to be a great poet, you only have to write like three or four great poems in a lifetime. Like you know, as with any other endeavor, most of what you do is going to be if not dross exactly, then sort of the middling work, which I suppose and in many cases, of what you have to work through in order to get to the great poems. And here, from page 102, is a fun bit about that that also reminded me in its way of uh, this Allen Ginsberg poem, Supermarket in California. Uh, Tennyson's at the salad bar, making his way around, holding the chilled plastic plate, fumbling in his beard. Poet laureate of the British Empire, staring for a long time at the tub of bean salad. Corn salad or bean salad, which will it be today? into the valley of death rode the 600 plop beans Pope's there Alexander Pope the magpie trickster rock polisher malevolently ladling the blue cheese at eye level taking care not to spill hey Alex you don't want to talk to me that's fine and what each of them comes up with is a couple of pages worth of poems in an anthology all of that rhythmic chewing and swallowing and digesting all the conversational nodding yes yes true true Mm mm-hmm results in something called collected poems, and out of these collected poems grow a few sprouts, a couple of pages, and a paperback. That's the way it works. Long ago, there was an article in commentary. The article was called, Why We Need More Waste, Fraud, and Mismanagement in the Pentagon. The idea was that in order to build a magnificent weapon of deterrence, you need to tolerate $20 screws and $500 screwdrivers. Well, it's not really true of the Pentagon, but it's true of poetry. I suppose at this point, to, uh, I want to back up and explain that the the first paragraph about the salad bar has to do with um, another theory of Paul Chowder's, that uh, making a poem is kind of like making a salad, and you know you right. want some red onions in there and right. maybe some gorgonzola.
1: And it's just, I think I was thinking about this as you were reading that you know a, a big part of this book and and of Baker's work more broadly is the kind of reinforcement of the pleasure of imagination that you know that this guy what keeps him from being a wallower he uses the word wallower to describe himself you know but he's always imagining that he can't focus on his his anthol you know his anthology essay because he 's just a procrastinator; he's interested in other things. he wants to set poems to tunes he 's you know he 's actually somewhat happy up there, avoiding and, and it 's not pure happiness because there 's obviously some anxiety about it. there is this anxiety, this thread of darkness running through the book about what have I really accomplished but the book actually I thought came to a very a very kind of calm place about that a place of acceptance of we write you know which is actually connected to the riff that you just read which is we write you know, one of the things that Chowder really wants to do but hasn't yet is he wants to write that really great poem, the poem that will be his anthology poem, and he believes he has not, and he talks about kind of creating the circumstances in which to do it, that he would do anything in order to write that poem, and that he spends a lot of time striving to write the poem. But uh, but he hasn't. And yet the book doesn't end on a very dark note about that, it seemed to me. How did you read that strain of the book? Michael? Mitchell, yeah, it
0: seems... You know, interesting, like, g- connecting to my riff um, before about how the, the Chowder character is anti-teaching, um, you know, the, you're right that he, he never does write the poem, but the but the the book does end in a sort of ecstatic a, a moment at a, when he's teaching at a conference, and uh, Chowder, you know, gives his one um, big piece of writing advice, which which is that, um, you know, when you start a poem, you should, you know, try to remember the best thing about about the day so yeah I guess there is a sort of you know sense that you may not write great poetry but you can kind of fall back into the community of poetry or or you know people who, who care about language and, and then the people who care about you there seems to be a suggestion that that, that can sustain you whereas you know the creative work um, if it's not of the highest level or it's not going to be immortal or you know live as long as the language is alive or, or something right. um, it's
1: preoccupation yeah
0: yeah, that, no, that's a very good point because it wasn't, it's not, it is It is upbeat that way. It, it, you know, you get the sense that everyone will survive, um, or challenger will survive, I guess. Yeah, because yeah, I yeah. kept wondering how he was going to get out of this because I was yeah. like,
1: is Roz really going to come back? Is he going to finish the essay and mm-hmm. Roz will come back and everything will be great? And he got, basically, that is kind of what happens, right? Mm-hmm. we can talk about the end for a moment. Spoiler alert, mm-hmm. I suppose, yeah. for our, our readers who haven't gotten to it. You know, he ends up writing the Introduction. Well, actually, this conference is key. It's kind of the catalyst moment, right? He, he is confronted with all these students who are, you know, are eager for his pearls of wisdom gleaned from years of being a, a writer. And that's part of this book, too, as he starts with the very – there's a kind of a slight archness to the tone about knowledge and delivering knowledge onto others. And if I could just quote very quickly from the beginning, the first paragraph is, hello, this is Paul Chowder, and I'm going to try to tell you everything I know. Well, not everything I know, because a lot of what I know, you know. But everything I know about poetry, all my tips and tricks and woes and worries are going to come out, tum- come tumbling out before you. I'm going to divulge them. What a juicy word that is, divulge. Truth opening its petals. Truth smells like Chinese food and sweat. So there's a kind of archness, I think, a kind of both a kind of sense of pleasure and a sense of archness. And at the very end, that that comes back. It's a kind of parentheses where he's in, um, he's in this he's at this conference, he's supposed to be delivering wisdom, and then he finally says, he just comes at that very natural truth of the thing you should write about is the thing that was the best thing in your day, which does actually seem quite Baker-esque to me. And then, of course, he bursts into tears Hmm. in front of his students. And that's the transitional moment after which he goes home, writes writes his introduction, and sort of tries to get Ross back. How did that, I don't know, how did that strike you? Troy, how did that strike you device. It's a little bit of the deus ex machina of the novel.
2: Yeah, it's a little bit in in a novel that's otherwise very kind of understated and measured. It's It uh, might be kind of a touch operatic. I mean, I guess the, uh, Paul was overdue for some kind of catharsis or minor breakdown or uh, whatever you want to call it. It's interesting, you know, I just read this book last week, but I'd kind of sort of forgotten that that was the ending of it the the impression that I was left with I I, uh, fixed on kind of a scene where he's like helping a friend uh, do some house painting and sort of you know my impression was that he's uh, in my memory that he kind of made uh, peace with his limitations and with his failures and was in a New England kind of way sort of discovering the sort of the pleasure of sort of a simple work.
1: Soulcraft. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: Which I suppose is, you know, uh, a, a worked over theme in itself. But right. um, that's, you know, the greatest, the greatest joys he gets in this book beyond kind of reading and uh, beyond his pleasure in reading and communicating that pleasure in others. He's having the most fun when he's like mowing his neighbor's lawn or helping her uh, lay down a new uh, wood floor uh, or Picking blueberries, um,
1: yeah, and those and those go hand in hand with what my favorite moments about poetry in the book were, which is not really have anything to do with the inside poetry world part of it at all, but more just that again that kind of obsessive attention to just the small things of life, the mundane pleasures, and the things one's mind get hooks on that otherwise often don't get written about, and that is one of the things that Baker has made uh, a career out of and um, so there's the kind of what it's like. He has a whole meditation on nailing and the rhythm of nail, you know, hammering something into the into the floor which is wonderful. And that to me is quite analogous. He also has a very funny um, little meditation on how when he reads 19th century or older poetry that has, you know, little elisions so it'll say something like, oh, you know, the misty fog rolls o'er the hills you know, O oh, apostrophe E-R. He's like, I just I can't stand that. So <laughs> I, I, I read the V but you have to read it very quickly and kind of quietly and silently so it's not quite a syllable and that those are the moments that for me really um were the most winning and anchoring parts of this novel whereas actually i think i would tend to agree with david orr that some of the stuff that's sort of fun to read about the contemporary poetry world didn't didn't really say very much about it um, ultimately
0: yeah and and slightly connecting to this i think we should discuss the kind of the two most amazing corrections in the book Um, which is, um, I'll just, just, I'll just read it. Over? Yeah, page 126. and so It says, You can take it a step further and say, as Herrick did, gather ye rosebuds. Go ahead, say it if you must. But no, it was a typo. It was supposed to be gather your rosebuds. The ye was an abbreviation for your, but with an E in the place of the R. It was corrected to your in the second edition. So yes, you can say, enjoy the panoply, panoply now, friends. Gather your rosebuds rosebuds make the best bouquet of them you can manage use all the sprigs of baby's breaths you care to use because time is on the march and you must of course seize the day but here's the thing Horace didn't say that carpe diem doesn't mean seize the day it means something gentler and more sensible carpe diem means pluck the day carpe pluck seize the day would be cape diem. if my school latin serves no r very different piece of advice what Horace had in mind was that you should gently pull on the day 's stem as it were, say a wildflower or an olive, holding it with all the practiced care of your thumb and the side of your finger, which knows how not how to not crush easily crushed things, so that the day 's stalk or stem undergoes increasing tension and draws to a thinness and a tightness, and then snaps softly away at its weakest point. The sentence goes on, perhaps leaking a little milky sap, and the flower or the fruit is released in your hand. I thought that was a really
2: I you know, that's what next I, line to pluck yeah. the
1: cranberry or blueberry of the day tenderly free without damaging it is
2: what it was <laughs> <laughs> my, my favorite sentence in this passage comes uh, further along yeah don't freaking grab the day in your fist like a burger at a fairground and take a big chomping bite out of it <laughs> that's not the kind of man, <laughs> that, man that, that horse, horse was, was. <laughs> but
1: this is a really fabulous passage and it totally is great because it also captures his, his character I mean that's such a New england character like the kind of you know jovial guy who you know is obsessed with things and suddenly kind of lets this little burst of anger out about kind of something about contemporary culture which that line of don't freaking grab the day in your fist like a burger you know that that's one of those moments of small anger I was wondering having had several other kind of discursive passages like this where he's telling you something that is just not true I was wondering I I meant to look up my my, just trying to recall my own high Mm -hmm. school Latin (laughs) and I could not remember is seize the day really cap idea you know how much of this was true uh Mm. I, I couldn't. I couldn't quite. Yeah, we need
0: Google in the, yeah, uh, in, the well, audio, in the body of. Book I club. should have just looked it up before. <laughs> yeah. But
1: it's a totally amazing passage. Whichever the you know, however he's whether it's it's his own rereading of it or whether it's uh, you know an accurate reading. And of it.
0: I think it gets at what we were talking about. This sort of like
2: you know this kind of love of dailiness and and, and trying to notice the kind of the, the, the details. What do you think it is, Megan? That uh, poems stopped rhyming. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Chatter, you know, has this. Uh, sort of whole proposition that's you know, somewhat convincing about how it, it has <laughs> to do with with poems being translated into the French. Uh, and it sort depends of, on who you talk to. It's somewhat <laughs> convincing, yeah. yeah well, yeah. No, it's, it, he, it makes just enough. Even if he's a crank, it makes just enough sense to be uh, to seem worthy of consideration. Yes,
1: we should say what that is. What his theory is. Uh, Troy, do you want to take a stab at it? Or um, he he has a theory about why poems stop writing.
0: Well, he blames it on the futurists. He blames you know, it on right
1: Marinetti's Futurist Manifesto,
0: which is, and he kind of blames it on Swinburne too. Right, so right. Swinburne was, he was <laughs> this you know this massively prolific poet, and he seems to have exhausted the language. He was sort of this natural, you know, the ice cube of his day, and then kind of this natural genius for rhyme and uh, just you know after that, uh, so poetry much, was
2: exhausted. Right. Yeah, there's no. <laughs>
1: Yeah. yeah and then and then I guess after <laughs> marinetti's
2: sort of Marinetti infected Ezra Pound with this uh, sort of idea which is not unconnected to fascism, and that uh you know Ezra Pound, in his uh, uh sort of patriarchal way um, dispensed it to his uh, his peers and his youngers well um distributing cheese doodles at salons.
1: (laughs) This is, to me, a very, you know, a a crank theory. Um, You know, it, it has some basis in, you know, yes, you can say that, you know, Swinburne is exemplary of a kind of, you know, something that happened with rhyme and the kind of exhaustion of rhyme. I don't think it's that, you know, Elizabeth Bishop read, you know, or, or Ezra Pound read Swinburne or, um, you know, Eliot read Swinburne and then said, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. You know, I think more broadly, it, it is part of this broader cultural shift that was, that was happening. And he just chooses these particular kind of... Um, people and manifestos to kind of hang his theory on almost like one would hang the tablecloth over the uh, over the uh, clothesline that he talks about so much but you know to me it it does have to do with something he gets at which is that idea of the over the exhaustion the exhaustion of language a little bit um and obviously i think to me the the disappearance of rhyme also has to do with you know, free verse was introduced in English language poetry t- as a corrective to what someone like Pound perceived as a kind of falseness of of iambic pentameter, which is something actually paradoxically that Chowder might agree with. That you know, Pound was excited about free verse because he saw it as an opportunity for people to stop padding their lines, that there was all this kind of extra language in poetry that was just decorative, ornamental, false. And it was because of meter, right, that people didn't know how, you know, they had to fill this pre-existing form and that that was not authentic. And this is all happening as the world is changing. and. And he saw free verse as an attempt to kind of get back to um, not so much just to let anyone do whatever and not have a musicality to the poetry, but actually to intensify the musicality of the poetry and perhaps even rhyme. So... I've lost my train of thought, but um, it does seem, you know, that it's, it's part of this, this sense of an exhaustion of the language and of a desire to kind of get back to an authentic language, you know, Wordsworth's idea of men speaking to men. And rhyme in, in English in particular is extremely dependent on inversion and inversion, you know, so the idea, so that inverting words in their order, which sounds extremely false to us. And so I think that's part of it too, that rhyme got more difficult for poets so they sort of start to let mm. go of it a little bit but mm. um I don't know what do you think do you have a theory
2: uh, of why poems stopped rhyming? uh you know I, I think that what you have to say is persuasive what Paul Schauder has to say is not entirely unpersuasive right because it, right. it's no it's no fun to have uh sort of um a, a protagonist or a first person narrator who's just uh a total dingbat. If, he, no, if he's, he's not a dingbat. Yeah, like, mean, But crank if he's, is
1: a good word because cranks have, like, cranks, cranks might have uh, something, right? You know, they, they're sort of like conspiracy theorists. He, he reminds me a little of a conspiracy theorist. Conspiracy theorists usually ha- are kind of right in some way, but they're, like, putting all the weight on certain things, right. certain very specific things when you think, mm-hmm. well, what about X and Y and Z? Right. right. Is it really Marinetti or is it, like, broadly speaking, a number of things that are happening in the culture? Right. You know, If, like, Marinetti's essay hadn't been written, would we all be writing poems that rhyme? (laughs) You
0: know? Um, I like the notion that, you know, that Chowder suggests that, you know, the the kind of desire for lyric poetry has been, you know, kind of plowed into hip-hop. I thought that was sort of an interesting notion. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually had
1: this amazing moment. I had just read that scene and I was on the subway on my way to Princeton to teach my intro to poetry to my students and there was this guy, this young guy sitting there writing lyrics to a hip-hop song and he was so physical and so so intensely kind of reading out loud to himself. Everyone in the car just started to look at him because he was so in it and it was this, he was moving and his hands were moving and his body was moving and it had this intense musicality and I was like that's what it was to be a poet once upon a time. I mean that is what you know if you, if you see like the bright bright star the new movie about Keats, mm-hmm. he and Charles Brown are always reading their poems out loud and of course it's a dramatization and it has to be in a movie but there was that sense of like the musicality, the physicality of it yeah, keats had know.
0: mad flow You keats would had say mad yeah, flow yes. Yes.
1: <laughs> um. uh, yeah so anyway i suddenly thought oh god what has happened we don't rhyme we don't do anything we just it is just slow prose isn't that what yeah. he calls but, you it you know rhyming has, <laughs> his,
0: da- has his downsides
1: <laughs> as um. you know
0: any um poetry slam Refugee will yeah. tell <laughs> you. What, what I don't agree with is
1: his... Um, so, yes, I can kind of accept in a way. I don't mean to say that Chowder is a dingbat. I do sort of accept certain parts of his, his uh, story about how how rhyme. But what I, what I don't, what I can't get down with is his uh, assertion that the four-beat line is the line of English mm. poetry. Like, to me, that... I, I totally enjoyed that as a proposition, as a kind of polemical proposition for the book, and I think the book wouldn't have worked without it. And it made me reconsider the four beat line, but I wouldn't want the four beat line to be the the sole th- building block.
2: Sure, it's still something to chew on. And, and totally. And what is the, the perhaps the the most rewarding thing about the book is that it does sort of inspire one, or ins- at least inspire me, to read poetry and and reread poetry. And so, on that note, I think I'm going to go look into some Louise Bogan right now.
1: Oh, yeah. She's, she's pretty great. Um, I, I totally agree. And it actually, it made me, you know, I'm in the middle of thinking through these two workshops I'm teaching, and it did actually make me think about them differently and to think about the four-beat line and the importance of really, I mean, he's right. That is a totally crucial, uh, you know, part of English language poetry that we tend to privilege dynamic pentameter, the kind of refocusing our attention on that. I have to say I enjoyed that. I went back to a lot of of those poems Um, and just I enjoyed chewing over a lot of his different propositions about you know did
0: you do any singing you know the book asked you uh, to do a lot of singing I don't sing although um,
1: it did remind me and I was hoping he would have this in there and he didn't that in um, college a college professor of mine once who was teaching me Milton noted you know offhandedly that you could sing the opening of Paradise Lost to the tune of the Flintstones. And I have never been able to, uh, to read it the same way again. Would the you opening share some of, that? of man's disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree. I can't, I'm totally off key, but you get the <laughs> picture. The, the line is of man's disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree. And you can totally do the, I can't remember the tune of the Flintstones we exactly. We could do the
0: whole like podcast. On, on fun facts from college. For example, I know that Ulysses starts with the letter, uh, starts with a word that begins with S and ends with Y, and then ends with a word that starts with Y and begins with S. Ah, that's pretty much that's all I can tell you about Ulysses.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Michael, what did you take away from the book?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, like Troy, wanted to go, you know, read uh, read some poems, and, you know, maybe out in public on the subway. It kind yeah. of like, yeah. you know, three cheers for poetry again. And um, yeah, it kind of It's kind of made me never wanted to live in like a converted barn (laughs) in the middle of the woods either you know I think um, like Chatter I would grow to hate the bird song and I don't know so I just you know yeah read poetry in a reasonably quiet apartment somewhere. I think that's the lesson of the anthologist.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, on that note, I think we will bring this podcast to a close. Um, We hope that you will join us next time when we're going to be discussing different versions of Raymond Carver stories, A Small Good Thing and The Bath and the the sort of Gordon Lish, his editor's version and his own version and maybe broadly a, a little bit more of Carver and those differences. Uh, Michael and Troy thank you so much for joining me today this has been a
2: pleasure my pleasure for
1: Slate.com I'm Megan O'Bourke